In Robert L. Peterson's wonderful biography of Robert Chapman, we see a glimpse of the man his contemporary Charles Haddon Spurgeon called the saintliest man I ever knew. Peterson writes about Pastor Chapman with these words, For 70 years he pastored in the hamlets and villages surrounding Barnstaple, England. With patience and gentleness he was a servant to those he led. My business is to love others and not to seek that others shall love me, were words remembered by one of the many missionaries he had influenced. The word love, which so clings to any account of Chapman's life, refers to an attitude of caring, a giving of himself that marked his long life. He understood the concept of Christian love as few others have. His life illustrated Christ's new commandment that we love one another even as I have loved you. It was the very heartbeat of Christianity. Robert Chapman became one of the most respected Christians of 19th century Britain. He was a lifelong friend and mentor to George Mueller, the founder of the large orphanage system at Bristol. He was an advisor to J. Hudson Taylor, who used him as an arbitrator for China Inland Mission. After his conversion, he was discipled by a preacher, Chapman was, who had broken from the Church of England. Chapman developed a strong concern for the welfare of the dwellers in the slums of London, the same slums of which Charles Dickens wrote a few years later. Invited to pastor a troubled church in a small town, he abandoned a modest fortune, his profession, and all possibilities of advancement to spend the rest of his life in an obscure corner of England. We see him struggle, his biographer says, with a small group of immature Christians, bringing them to maturity through love and example. He became a missionary to missionaries. His home became a retreat for tired and discouraged Christian workers. He counseled and encouraged always on the basis of the scriptures he loved. Robert Chapman was not a noted orator, but he became a good preacher. He was not known as a theologian, but he was a thorough student of the Bible. He was not a famous hymn writer, but many of his hymns are still sung. What then made Chapman so beloved and effective in his time? His biographer says, quite simply, his utter devotion to Christ and his determination to live Christ. These were the driving forces in his life. From these flowed his other attributes, his balanced outlook, and most of all, the love for which he was best known. In return, people loved him and God honored him with good health, a long life. He lived 99 and a half years and inward peace. Robert Chapman is actually more famously known as the Apostle of Love. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, love. 
Look with me at John chapter 15 from verses 12 to 17. I read them to you earlier and they bear our repetition again now. Let's read John 15 verses 12 to 17. Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now I have begun today's message with this lead in from Robert Chapman. Because I want you to hear an example of someone who genuinely sought to live out what John 15, 12 to 17 commands us to do. And as I read John uh, John 15, verses 12 to 17, I see six things, six things here that really give us Christ's essence out of, flowing out from His command to love. And the first one is this. It is simply Christ's command to love. Christ's command to love. Do you see it listed there in the first part of verse 12? Here's the command, simple as it is, love one another. I say simple as it is in terms of the words off the page. It's not altogether simple to live out, is it? Love one another. Now, what's amazing to me is, in a sense, according to what Paul tells the Thessalonians, for example, we are not supposed to be in need of knowing this command and living it out, because we already know it. In fact, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to give you a number of passages to show you how replete in Scripture, this concept of loving one another is. Now, I don't want to frustrate you, so if you're not going to turn to every one of these passages that I give you, at least write them down so that you can meditate on them on your own. This is the first, and this is amazing. And as I said, now, in a sense, we don't need someone to tell us as Christians to love in this way, since the Apostle Paul makes it clear that love is the obvious mark of what it means to be a Christian. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, chapter 4, look at verse 9. Paul says to the Thessalonican believers, now concerning brotherly love, that's the love between Christians to each other, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. In other words, you don't really need me to write to you to say, love one another. Why? For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. I think what he's saying there is that it is innate within Christians 
that as they come to Christ and as they continue to blossom in Christ, they know innately, inherently, that they should love one another. And that's what Paul is saying. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. You do it because it's innate within you. You've been granted new life. You've had implanted within you a new heart. God took out, according to Ezekiel, a heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh, a palpable heart, a malleable heart, a heart that, that changes and grows with the time because Christ is, is focusing that heart and changing that heart into a heart of love from what before was a heart of hate, a heart of stone. And that's what he's telling us. Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. These are passages which I know are undoubtedly familiar to many of us, but it does bear our hearts to see them again in the context of this idea of loving one another. This is Christ's command, whether it's from the Apostle Paul or Christ from his own lips himself. In Romans chapter 12, look at verse 9. Let love be what? Genuine. Genuine. Abhor, detest what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. And I love this. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's amazing. And I think we ought to outdo one another in showing honor, especially to those who are our elder brothers and sisters in the Lord, right? Do you know that within our little small flock here, we have an elderly sister who is 94 years old and as sweet as can be. And we have another brother who is among us who on November 1st will be 100. 100. Isn't that amazing? And the Lord has shaped those hearts into being hearts of love the very radiance of love. Would to God that he would create in our hearts as young believers, for that's the way I characterize myself, young believers, to have a heart of love, to love one another, to outdo one another in showing honor. Look at chapter 13 of Romans, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to what? To love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul wants to say the same thing to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. These commands to love are are all over our New Testaments. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He's saying to the Galatians, I'm not just asking you to serve one another. I'm not just telling you by way of a command to serve one another, but you are to serve one another through love. 
For the whole law, verse 14, is fulfilled in one word. Here it is again. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then by way of a negative injunction, he says, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, which of course is the opposite of serving one another through love, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Ephesians chapter 4. Just the next New Testament book over, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, that is speaking the truth in love, it makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in what? Love. It's love. That's the fulfillment of the whole law. And he's not finished. Look at chapter 5. Therefore, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's the love that you have for each other as you are mutually attempting to be imitators of God and walk in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You say, what's Jesus commanding us here in John 15, 12? To love one another? Yes, absolutely. He's commanding us to love one another as he has loved us. That's outline point number two. Christ's example of love. Christ's example of love. Not just Christ's command to love, but Christ's example of love. Look at what he says in the latter part of verse 12 of John 15. He says, you should love one another. You must love one another. I command you to love one another. And he says, here's the example, as I have loved you. Now you know why it's not a simple command to be obeyed. Because it's hard. It's hard to love as he has loved us. What a standard. What a standard. You mean... I am commanded by you, Jesus, as one of your followers to love one another. The answer, he says, is yes. And then the inevitable question is, how? How can I love? What does that look like? Here's his answer. As I have loved you. You say, wait a second. I mean, can I love like that? Is is it possible? It must be. Because this is a part of that command, right? Love one another as I have loved you. You say, what was the extent, the example of Christ's love? Look back at John chapter 13, verse 1. In the flow of this dialogue that he's having with these disciples in the upper room, and now probably on their walk from the upper room in just a few hours to the Garden of Gethsemane, This is what was the extent or the example of Christ's love. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, that's specifically a reference to these disciples, to the apostles, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to what extent? To the end. He loved them to the end. He couldn't have loved them any more than he loved them. 
No wonder he says at the end of John 13 in that verse that I quoted you earlier, verse 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You see, that's too high. That's, that's a standard of attainment that I can't achieve. Well, in one sense, that's true. Jesus was the unique Son of God. He died on a cross. He made available the opportunity to love in the first place. And He was sinless. And He loved sinlessly those to whom He was loving to the end, to the fullest extent, to the max. But apparently there must be something in these texts that are telling us that through the supernatural living of Holy Spirit power, you and I can love supernaturally and we can love in the vein of Christ, in the impact of Christ, in the power of Christ, to the measure that Christ commands us. And he says, just as I have loved you, you go out and love one another. And when you do, you will show the world that you are my disciples. Now that, my friends, is a tall order. How can, we, how can we love like that? How can this be possible? Well, that same writer, John the Apostle, who's penned this gospel, says what he says in 1 John chapter 3, and he says it very clearly. It is possible. Somehow and in some way, in 1 John chapter 3, he says this in verse 16, By this we know love. If you want to know what love looks like, if you want to know how it's defined, if you want to see its example, here it is. By this we know love that He laid down His life for us. You say, yes, I agree with that. That's, that's what Jesus did. The unique Son of God, He laid down His life for us. He was the sinless Son. Of course He did. He did. And then verse 16, the latter part says, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See how those two are tied together? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, it gets really practical. Indeed, he says in verse 18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? I tell you what, I was... I was so impacted this past week by the love that I saw, especially from Christian people in the Baden situation. Some of you know exactly that. Some of you were involved in that. In fact, some of you were showing the world that you're disciples of Jesus by how you love the Badens. It was very impactful. I think heaven will only record the redounding glory to God that some people gave in their sacrificial love for that family. I know that's what the Bodens think. There were people who weren't loving in mere word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Look at verse 23 of that same chapter, 1 John 3. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Do you see how orthodoxy is pinned together inextricably, linked together with orthopraxy? The practical outworking of my orthodox belief in Jesus as the Son of God. 
And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in Him, abides in Christ, and He in them. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. It's a Trinitarian love. It's a Trinitarian obedience. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ because the Spirit whom God has given me empowers me to love. And when I need to see the example of that love, I think no more than what Jesus did on that cross because He showed me the extent of that love, full sacrifice, even to the point of death. And if that were called upon from my life towards somebody else, I wouldn't even think twice about it because it is my love for Jesus Christ that constrains me to do what He did as I have loved you. Look at chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 19. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God... And you know, there are a lot of people in our world. I love God. I love God. Don't judge me. I love God. You can't judge my heart. Well, God goes into the heart and says this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's all predicated on Christ's example of love. Thirdly, Christ's extent of love. This is the ultimate extent. Not just his command to love, not just his example, how he loved them. This is the extent of his love. Look at verses 13 and 14 of John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. The command to love. If you do what I command you, loving one another, you will show progressively your love for God, your love for them, and to the extent that you may be called upon to give even of your very life, you show the greatness of that love. Greater love has no one than this. And of course, who is being referenced there? Jesus himself. He's the one who had that greater love. He's the one who laid down his life for his friends. No wonder he can command that kind of allegiance, that kind of love. He paid the ultimate price. He is the one who showed the extent of that love, and that love is obvious. You know, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, and he would not be dissuaded by anything or anyone because he knew the extent of the love to which he was going to bear upon these disciples I will go to that cross and I will die for them. That's the extent of his love. That's why when you and I sing songs about the cross, I'll often look out into the congregation and I'll see people weeping. I'll see ladies grabbing tissue and daubing their eyes because the extent of the love of Christ. I remember one time in Little Rock, uh, I was probably... Uh, thinking about a thousand things, uh, not least of which was the sermon that was about to come. And I, I don't know why, 
but the offering was, was being sung by a young man in our church and he sang this line and I'll never forget it as long as I live. He loved me with a cross. And somehow and in some way that struck me so. And it's happened little before then and little afterward that I was so struck with the idea that the love of Jesus Christ, the very extent of his love was to go to that cross and die for me. And just the, the fact of that succinct statement of those words in that moment, I burst into tears and I had to compose myself for probably 10 minutes from the pulpit as I got up there because I could not think of anything else but the love of Jesus Christ. The love of Christ. It constrains us. It overpowers us. It enlivens us. It grants us peace and hope and most importantly, love. This is the love of Christ we're talking about. This is the extent of His love. He loved them to the very end. In fact, look in your Bibles at John 17. This is, this is Jesus almost in a sense removing the veil and talking directly to his heavenly father and that you and I can listen in on. And in John 17, verse 19, it says, and for their sake, the sake of the apostles, these disciples, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart. I, I pledge this that they may also be sanctified, be consecrated, be holy in truth. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me, because we believe through that apostolic word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then verse 23, the latter part, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is, this is a love with which the world knows nothing. They think about lilting music and, and all of this worship that we're involved in and giving in our offerings and standing to sing and standing to read the Word of God and gathering together as the saints and making people meals and serving them in their trial of the moment and everything else and anything else. And they look at that and they cannot understand that. And I say to myself, they will understand that if they know that God is saying, just as I have loved you, you love one another. And I will show the world that you're my disciples if you manifest that kind of love. Even the extent of that love. Even giving your life if need be. Romans chapter 5, Paul captures this when he says in chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were miserable and wretched and naked and blind and weak and ungodly, God showed his love for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ dying 
for us. Do you know the extent of that love? Have you thought about the extent of that love, especially as you are endeavoring to serve one another? I mean, there's, re- there's really no extent to our love if you think about it in those terms. The, the extent to which I will be self-sacrificial, the extent to which I will give of myself, how can I not? The love of Christ. That's why Romans 8 Jesus says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect through the pen of Paul? Is it God who justifies? Yes. Is is it Satan who condemns? Yes. But Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, I think if we're super conquerors, as Paul says here in Romans 8, we can serve somebody else. Right? We can serve. I mean, if we're already up against tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, and that's not going to separate us from the love of Christ? No, there's nothing because we're super conquerors in Christ. And Paul says, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that love will never be separated from us, I think we can turn around and love somebody else. Right? I think we can love that way. Sure we can. We must. We must love that way. If we don't love that way, then then who are we as representatives of Jesus Christ in the world? We're poor ones at that. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. That's pretty clear. Anyone who does not Love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the love of Christ. I mean, this, this, is, this is the command to love. This is the example to love. This is the extent of love. And number four, Christ's revelation of love. Christ's revelation of love. This is, this is phenomenal. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants. That really should be translated slave. No longer do I call you slave. For the servant, slave, does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. That, my friends, in one verse, tucked deeply here in John 15, is power-packed. Because here's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to give you an opportunity that is not afforded most slaves. A slave is in the house, or a slave is outside doing the menial tasks that they are called upon to do by their master, the master does not give them any other instructions, any other knowledge, any other opportunity, except what he has commanded them to do. They are to know nothing else beyond that. 
He has no obligation, does this master, to tell them anything about what he's thinking, about what he's planning, about his homestead, about his life, about his joys, about his sorrows. He has no friendship relationship with those slaves at all, and that's what was true in the first century. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's best. I'm just telling you what it was. And in the first century, there was no concept of a slave being a friend of the master. And there was no concept of a slave hearing something like a master would be talking to his friend. Not at all. And yet, here's what Jesus said. Look back at verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves. Because they don't know what their master is doing. I'm actually going to tell you, not as a slave but as a friend, what I'm doing. And how much does he tell them? Look at verse 15. I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father. What? All that I've heard from my Father? This is called divine gossip. (laughs) And it is glorious. You mean to tell me that the divine Son of God has heard certain things from his friend, the Father. And the Father has revealed, that's that word there, made known, has revealed the plan of the ages to the Son. And the Son will now give this information to those who were heretofore slaves? He says, you're no no slaves anymore. You're my friends. Now, it doesn't say that I can call Jesus my friend. Notice it doesn't say that because he is the sinless son of God. He is the second member of the Godhead. I I can't, nor does the scripture say that I can say Jesus is my friend. But here's what I can say. I'm his friend. I'm his friend. Why? Because I was a slave. And when he brought me into a relationship with him and he loved me to the max, He says, I'm going to tell you a few things. And he happens to reveal to them the plan of the ages. The whole of redemption. All that the Father has told me, I'm going to turn around and tell you. Oh, I tell you the intimacy of that relationship. I call you friends. You're you're my friends. And I've revealed to you what the Father has revealed to me. What a revelation. What a revelation this is. If you and I are friends of Christ, then you and I see this book for what it really is. We see the plan for what it really is. And we see our relationship to Him for what it really is. No longer simply a master-slave relationship. Oh, it's true that He is Lord... He is my master. Uh, That's not as though that goes away completely. That's true in and of itself. But there's so much more to that. Because now, I'm not simply a slave of Christ. I'm a son. I'm a son to the Heavenly Father through Jesus. And the Son tells me things in His Word that He wants me to know. And He tells me, this is what I'm commanding you. This is my revelation to you. Love one another. Love one another. Number five, we'll call it Christ's election of love. Christ's election of love. Look at verse 16. 
just in case there might be these apostles who might start to be a little high and mighty. They might say, ah, I'm pretty privileged. I mean, I was a slave, and I had no relationship with the master, the owner of the house. He never told me anything else other than do your work and do it well. But now, since I'm being called a friend, since I'm being given this revelation of the entire plan of God, maybe I'm going to get a little high and mighty. Maybe I'm going to get a little proud about my friendship relationship. And he erstwhile and immediately tells them, verse 16, you did not choose me. But I chose you. And that's first and foremost the electing work of the grace of God. You see it there? Do you see it when I read it in 1 John? We loved God because He what? First loved us. Right? The initiation is always from His side. That's what election is all about, that's what choosing is all about. That's what God does. He opens our blind eyes. He unstops our deaf ears. He tells us what we need to know. And we are in a desperate position. We're in a desperate condition. And we don't know it. And we don't see it. And we're walking down the primrose path. And we're going to fall right off that cliff into eternal perdition. And we have no clue about it. And in Christ's saving love, He says, I shall choose you. And I shall choose you to reveal myself to you. And I will tell you what the Father has told me. And that, my friends, does not elicit pride. It elicits what? Humble praise. Because you and I are saying to ourselves, and we should say it to ourselves every day, how is it that God has chosen me? How is it? I mean, in the mass of sinful humanity in our world, from the first man, Adam himself, until the last person in existence on this earth, how can it be that in the mass of sinful humanity, God looks down and says, through nothing about me and my initiative to choose Jesus Christ or anything inherent within me, like I'm so good and I'm going to see Christ and I'm going to obey Christ. It's none of that. I love him because he first loved me. I have been chosen. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. It should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Yes. Right in the midst of this discussion, one of these revelatory points that Jesus wants them to know. Here's... here's this revelation from the Father, and here's what the Father is telling me that I'm now telling you. I chose you. I, you didn't choose yourself. There's not a single person on the planet who ever said, I chose God as though that was the initiatory act to begin the relationship with God. Not on your life. Because in our depravity, our sinfulness, we could never choose Christ. We would never have chosen Christ. We would have continued to go on our sinful way and we would be in hell forever except for the grace, the electing grace of God. That's what he's saying. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I mean, in one sense we could say, there's the sentence, there's the theology, there's the revelation that I didn't choose Christ, he chose me. And you might even be able to say it like this, he chose me, therefore I chose him. Because that's true too, right? There's not going to be anybody in the world who's going to be in heaven who says, I don't want to be here. 
I don't want to be here. I don't know why I was chosen, but I don't love God. I don't want to be here. I don't love Christ. I don't want to obey Christ. There's not going to be a single person like that. You're going to be in heaven, and you're going to be so humbled, and perfectly so, that you're going to say, Hallelujah, He chose me. And the only reason I choose Him is because He first loved me. This is, my friends, this is the love of God. This is the love of God. This is why Mark 3, 13 to 15 says this, And He, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired, and they came to Him. Did you hear that? He went up on a mountain and he prayed and he prayed all night and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. That's God's plan. This is, this is all a part of God's plan. Back in John 17, in that very verse, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Yes. You sent me, I send them. You, you can't look at the book of Acts. You can't look at, look at all of the works of the apostles through the Holy Spirit's power and say, boy, those guys just pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and they took their own initiative and they preached powerfully. No, you look at the Gospels and you say, who are these guys? They're weak, they're vacillating, they're confused, they're bewildered, they're betwixt and between, they don't know what's going on. Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised again, I'm going to go to the Father, I'm going to send the helping presence, the Holy Spirit, and He's going to be with you. And He's telling them all this truth and He's revealing all of this wonderful plan of God's hope for the... The, the people of Israel and for the Gentiles of all the nations, and they go, huh? What? I don't get that. What does he mean by dying? Our, our Messiah from Israel, he doesn't die. He, he doesn't come to die on a cross. He comes to take over. He's the king. He's the king of kings. He's going he's gonna to vanquish all our foes. In fact, we've got this Roman oppression now. We just can't wait. In fact, there's a whole group of them that couldn't wait. They're called the zealots. And they would go, and uh, in crowds in Rome, they would take a little knife and they would stab a, an official in the back and then they would just go off into the distance. And that's how they were wanting to take over. And Jesus said, look, I've got a legion of angels that could come down here and vanquish the whole lot of you and I could take over right now. That's not the plan. The plan is that I'm going to go to that cross and I'm going to die on that cross and I'm going to rise again in three days and then I'm going to go to the glory of the Father to have the glory with Him that I once had and then I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to bring you unto myself and then we're going to have a glorious 1,000 year reign of, of my rule on the earth and then the end shall come. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, and then he, Christ, will give the kingdoms of the world back to the Father, to the glory of the Father. This is the plan. And the disciples go, I, I don't get that. I don't understand that. What's he saying? And then the Holy Spirit comes down upon them in Acts 2 at Pentecost, and they go, oh, I get it now. All oh, these Old Testament prophets, that's what they were saying. That's what they meant. That's what's going on. I get it now. I understand that. And when they did, it was only because the Holy Spirit revealed to them the plan through Christ. They get it now. And so, what do they do? They say, we glorify the electing love of Jesus Christ. And they talk about it. Every, every Bible writer, every New Testament epistle, 
is some way or another talking about the electing grace of God. Finally, number six, Christ's expectation of love. His expectation of love. His, his command of love, His example of love, the extent of His love, the revelation of His love, the election of His love, and now the expectation of that love. Verse 17, these things I command you, notice the you there, you the apostles, so that you will love one another. It's a perfect bookend, isn't it? Started in verse 12, I command you to love one another. Here in verse 17, love one another. Perfect. Makes for a great outline for a sermon, doesn't it? You don't have to do anything. It's right there. It's right there in the text. Here's the expectation of that love. If you love me, you'll do what I command you. You know, it, Christianity can be reduced down to the simple premise that if you love Jesus Christ, you'll do what he says. That's right. You say, yeah, but you've already said that's not so easy. Of course it's not. But you persevere. And when you persevere, you see what that love looks like. And how am I to persevere? I love this. This is what I think he's referring to in verse 17. Do you see these words right at the beginning of verse 17? These things I command you. If you're like me, you say, what things? What things is he talking about? These things. Well, these things must include in their, in their context in this chapter an election not just to salvation, but the privilege and the opportunity to be sent out by Christ to produce the fruit of salvation for others. Isn't that what he said in verse 16? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go. Does that give you a reflection of Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that you should go? As you're going, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, as you're going, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them whatsoever I've commanded you. As you go, I've appointed you that you should go and do what? Bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. It should remain. It should stay. That, my friends, is what I would say is salvation fruit, evangelism fruit. That's what I think he's saying. He says in John 17, the Father sent me, now I'm sending you, apostles. I'm sending you out into the world. So what are they doing? Hanging out? At the local coffee shop? Just drinking a brew? Right? Is that what they're doing? Well, if they're at the coffee shop and they're having coffee, they're talking to somebody about the Lord. Right? That's what they're doing. Because he says, I not only chose you, but I also appointed you his sovereign decree that you should go and bear fruit. That means we got to get busy. We got to get busy. We got to bear fruit. What kind of fruit? We got to tell people about Christ. This is what he's saying. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The construction of that phrase is this. If you go out appointed by Christ to bear fruit, the fruit of evangelism, it is so that you will love one another. You and I love one another when we are serving together in the gospel proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. I was over at one of your houses not too long ago. And we were having this wonderful time. It's Labor Day. What a wonderful evening together with one of you. And I heard the father of that home through tears talking about his own gospel experience. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, so glorious to hear the impact of the life of somebody who witnessed to that man 
who now is all about witnessing to others regarding his faith in Christ. It impacts us when we see what has happened to us as Jesus chose us and then we go out and we share that gospel with somebody else. That's what we're all about. That's why he says, you will bear fruit. And guess what? That was answered because you and I are the product of the bearing of the fruit of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what John 17 says? He says... I don't ask for these only, these disciples, John 17, 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Yes, the disciples preach the word. Those apostles proclaim the gospel. The book of Acts is filled with those examples. And then this long line of legacy, the chain of the legacy of gospel fruit, the fruit of bearing of salvation comes even to our own day from the first century to the 21st. This is amazing. That's got to be included in these things. And then he says also, and if you do this, if you go out and bear fruit, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We're not left alone in our gospel witnessing. It's hard. It's difficult. It's nerve-wracking. You go up to somebody and you're nervous and your heart's beating out of your chest and you, I know I should be talking to Christ I know I should be witnessing to them what do I do what do I say I mean what if I say the wrong thing and you know what just tell them what you know about Christ tell them what Christ means to you ask them if they've ever had a relationship with Christ and in one sense it really doesn't matter what they say in response because who appoints whom right I appointed you I chose you and if that's one of God's elect, and if God is using that very point to show them that they need a Savior, as long as your doctrine is correct in what you share, as long as you're speaking that word of truth about Jesus Christ, the one you love, God may actually give you the privilege of speaking to them about the Lord. And you say, yeah, but that's going to take much prayer. Oh, nothing other than what he says right here. Whatever you ask the Father in my, my name, he may give it to you. And he's already said that once, and he's already said that again, and then he's going to say it again. Just trust God. Just trust God with the result. That's, that's got to be included in this. He's not just promised the bearing of the fruit of salvation, but he's promised answered prayer for the harvest of that evangelism fruit. What, what a plan! I mean, what a plan! And here's the grand part of the plan of every part of this plan, that he's using us, me, Using me, using me right now to encourage you, to arm you, to encourage you, to adjure you, to do what is right, to build up the body in love so that you can be equipped to go out and scatter for evangelization. That's, that's what we're doing. And we do it by and with and through love. I end with this. We started with the saintly Robert Chapman and we end with him as well. He loved evangelism. He loved prayer. His biographer says his patience was notable, but his human side sometimes showed itself. After a difficult Christian man came to live in Barnstaple, someone asked Chapman how things were going with that brother. He replied, we did not know our need of patience till he came among us. <laughs> Robert Chapman carefully observed people, a skill that helped him deal with tough situations. 
a lady on whom he called one day would not invite him in, but began berating him on the doorstep for some perceived wrong. Chapman turned to a brother who was waiting nearby and said, Dear brother, listen to this dear sister. She is telling me all that is in her heart. She was then unable to continue. When someone would come to Chapman with a story about the misconduct of someone else, he typically asked the complainer to go with him to confront the person directly, believing that both sides must be heard before any judgment could be made. You know, if someone's come with that, you know, not-so-divine gossip, the, 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 the bad gossip kind, oh, you know, that's interesting about that, brother. Well, let's go to him and let's ferret all these issues out. Let's work together. Of course, not everyone liked Chapman. Some people were greatly offended by his plain preaching on sin and the need for repentance. A touching story is told of his love and concern for one of those critics. A grocer in Barnstaple became so upset with Chapman when he was preaching in the open air that he strode up to where Chapman was standing and spit on him. Later, one of Robert's wealthy relatives came to Barnstaple to visit him and to understand his activities. Arriving by horse-drawn cab at the address given to him, the relative at first would not believe that Chaplin lived in such a simple abode in such a poor neighborhood. Chapman ushered him into the clean but simple interior and explained what living in dependence on the Lord meant and how the Lord had provided for all his needs. The relative asked if he could purchase groceries for him. Chapman gladly assented but stipulated that he must buy the food from a certain grocer. The relative went there, made a large purchase, and paid the bill. When the grocer learned that the food was to be delivered to R.C. Chapman, he said that the visitor, visitor must have come to the wrong shop. <laughs> Chapman's relative, however, replied that Chapman himself had specifically directed him to that shop. Out of love. The grocer who had viciously attacked and castigated Chapman for years broke down in tears. Soon he came to Chapman's house, asked forgiveness, and yielded his life to Christ. Through love, serve one another. Let's pray. Father, this is what we should do. This is what we must do. This is what we can do. And we will because we're so loved by Christ. Father, tonight as we hear about the hatred of the world, Give us love beyond our own. Give us the love of Christ. Allow us to endure the world's hatred by loving them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that was rather magnetic. Thank you, Pastor. Please turn with me to 415 in your hymnal, and as you're turning, if you haven't already stood, feel free to do so. 415. We are called to be God's 